thanks for tuning in to the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. We're a group of sinners saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and here you will hear the Word of God. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a privilege to share the Word of God with the Saints of Durban Memorial Baptist Church this morning. Whew. Hope we're awake. (laughs) When she was growing up, Elizabeth Holmes was considered a prodigy. She was seven years old. She tried to invent her own time machine. And that sounds something like like a silly little kid would try to do. And she wasn't successful. But instead of just coming up with some cardboard boxes and putting them together, she was drawing engineering schematics to try to put together her time machine. When she was nine years old, she told her family in the utmost serious uh, fashion and determined voice, I am going to be a billionaire when I grow up. In high school, she honed in on her work ethic. She was a straight A student in America while selling a type of software to schools in China. (laughs) She taught herself Mandarin. She was accepted into Stanford's summer program that culminated in a trip to Beijing and Uh, When it came time for her to go to college, she went all in at Stanford and she decided to study chemical engineering. She earned a position with the uh, with the president scholar that afforded her a three thousand dollar stipend that went towards a research project. The summer after her freshman year, she interned at the Genome Institute in Singapore. As a sophomore at Stanford, she got the idea to start a company. And so she was uh, inventing a device that would administer uh, medication. It would also monitor the patient's blood and adjust the dosage as needed for uh, their medical needs there. And she also said her company would be able to do an intricate blood test with just a single drop of blood. It would revolutionize the medical world if she could pull it off. She would drop out of college and she would go all in on her company called Theranos. Very quickly, she raised $700 million. The company would grow. The company would find investors all over the place. At one point, Elizabeth Holmes was the world's youngest self-made billionaire with a net worth of $4.5 billion. She reached the goal that she told her family at nine years old, but it came at a cost. In August of 2015, the FDA began investigating that company, Theranos. Regulators from the government body uh, that oversees laboratories found major inconsistencies with the testing that was being done. You see, even though she pitched a big game to her investors, Holmes didn't actually have any new technology. She was just running a small amount of blood through the same regular tests that require a whole lot more uh, to do that. And so reports on her company's struggles began to surface uh, all over the place and Holmes fought back. She went on CNN after all of this is starting to come to the surface and she said, this is what happens when you work to change things. At first they think you're crazy, then they fight you, and then all of a sudden you change the world. She just dug in and said, I'm going to do it. Now, the true story of Elizabeth Holmes is wild. It takes some twists and turns enough so that they've made a TV show and multiple documentaries about the whole thing. 
there. But at the end of the day, here's what happens. Elizabeth never had the tech to back up her dreams. So in her desire for personal glory, she defrauded multiple people. Though the world's former youngest billionaire would go down swinging, blaming everyone else on her way out, she would eventually lose everything. And just a few months ago, really, she was sentenced to over 11 years in prison. Now, you didn't come here this morning to learn the story of Elizabeth Holmes, I understand. But her story is a modern and interesting illustration of an ancient truth. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Elizabeth's personal desire for glory led her to hurt others, to cut corners, and to do whatever it took to get on top. Her pride led her right to personal destruction, and it was quite a fall. Growing up, she looked like a prodigy. She had every indication of success by what we could measure. That just goes to show us that we can't judge things by an outward appearance. It should also show us that just because you've had success in your field, just because you've tasted a little earthly success does not mean you are immune to the chickens coming home to roost. Turn with me, if you haven't already, to 1 Samuel chapter 15. In our text today, we're going to be confronted with the results of personal pride. We're going to see how humans in our falling condition will do anything we can to hold on to our pride. And we'll see how our personal performance and personal glory will never be enough to justify us before a holy God. We're basically looking at the downfall of a narcissist. But as I say that word, narcissist, we're often thinking about all those narcissists we know. (laughs) I would hope that as we look through this text, we're not trying to apply this to others, but we would look at ourselves that it would strike to the core of our own self-serving tendencies that we have and see how we're bent towards pride. So with all that said, today we're wrapping up a series uh, through a a middle section here of 1 Samuel that's been looking at the rise and fall of Saul. When you look at the life of Saul, you can draw some uh, some parallels with the story that I shared this morning in our introduction I do not know if uh, Saul was a a prodigy of the Benjamites Benjamites growing up. In fact, it says that he was kind of low of his own people. But I know when he came on the national scene, he looked impressive. Right? They say that he was a head above. He was a head above the shoulder, or his shoulders were above the heads of everyone else in the nation. The people were blown away by this man who stood a head above the rest of the pack. But as we've seen throughout the last few weeks, Saul's stature was what we could call fool's gold. Saul was weak, malicious, self-serving. And today we see the narcissistic king rejected. Look at verse 12, chapter 15. Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. 
Here's a quick refresher of where we're at in, in the text this morning. In the, in the beginning of this chapter, God had commanded Saul to go wipe out the entire tribe of the Amalekites, leave not even one. This was supposed to be an act of total destruction on the Amalekites. And Saul listens to the command, but he only partially obeys. Saul decides not to kill the king of the Amalekites, but instead... He keeps Agag alive. Why? He wanted to have him as a trophy. He also doesn't destroy the things that he finds appealing. He keeps and then allows the Israelites to keep the best of the cattle and the best of the goods that they find instead of doing what God said, which was devoting all of it to destruction. We then see the Lord speak to Samuel and say, I, have rejected, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Now, I told y'all last week, we're going to get in to the implications and intentions there of God's regret in this verse. And we're going to do that a little bit later uh, today. But as we're just kind of catching up here, one clear thing is that Saul's disobedience as king of Israel was grievous and it caused God's prophet Samuel much uh, lament and consternation. It, it was a grievous action with deep implications. So where we're picking up right here, where we're at in this verse 12, Samuel is on his way over to confront Saul over Saul's disobedience. The setting established here in verse 12 is interesting, and it really points out something that we need to know and bolsters this position that uh, Saul had basically lost the plot at this point. He wasn't following the Lord. Saul was opposed, or was supposed to be, excuse me, he was supposed to be the king of Israel serving the God of Israel, but instead he's serving himself. How is that highlighted here in this verse? Well, look closely. What was Samuel told that Saul was doing right here? He was building a monument for who? For himself. He was building a monument for himself. Saul, God told Saul, go take out the Amalekites. Saul has a decent yet partial victory, taking King Agag as his prize. And what does Saul do? He praises himself for the monument he's built. He says, y'all, look what I did. This is wrong for so many reasons. First of all, my, my first thought as I'm just reading through this text and making you know, connections is to instantly go to King Nebuchadnezzar from the book of Daniel, the Babylonian king who lorded over the Israelites and tried to get them to worship a golden uh, statue of what? Himself. If you know the story of the fiery furnace, you know that being compared to King Nebuchadnezzar ain't a good thing. <laughs> That's not a connection we want to be making. But another big red flag here is uh, for King Saul's behavior here is, is that this is not the first time Israel has had a victory over the Amalekites. This has been an ongoing battle. But it is the first time after a, a battle with the Amalekites that the leadership responded by glorifying itself. When God worked through Moses to provide an awesome victory to Israelites, to, to Israel hundreds of years before this, Moses responded also by making a monument, but it wasn't a monument for Moses. It was an altar to the Lord. It, the altar was named the Lord is my banner. When we add this to everything that we've seen in the, in, in the actions of Saul over the last couple of weeks as we've been walking through this, it shows how little regard Saul had for serving the Lord. The sad thing for Saul 
is that he didn't see past himself to see the seriousness of his sin. And if we're being honest this morning, the sad thing for many of us is that we often don't look past ourselves enough to see that our priorities have shifted from serving the Lord and on to serving ourselves. And we don't see the seriousness of that sin. Look at what Saul says in the next verse, verse 13. So Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed be, uh, be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandments of the Lord. Y'all, when Samuel walks up, Saul is stoked. He's like, this is awesome. This is an opportunity for me to gloat about what I just did. You see this? Uh, you see this monument, man? We had a victory. I did exactly what I was supposed to do. He says, I prefer, performed the commandment of the Lord. But if you refer, and if you want to draw a line in your Bible, back to verse 11, the Lord has explicitly said to his prophet Samuel, Saul has not performed my commandments. Saul doesn't see in his self-serving ways how disconnected he is from God's intention, God's will. That's an intentional repetition of that same phrase there to show us Saul is not on the same page as God. Just as a quick point of practical application, when we are so propelled by our own abilities, our own successes, we, like Saul, will find ourselves ignorantly opposed to God. We were never meant to relish in our own accomplishments and collect all the glory for ourselves. We are designed to do whatever we do in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Understanding that enables us to see even the good things we do, even the best victories we have in our lives are for the Lord. They're not for me, they're for him. Making it about us is an inversion of the supernatural order. So in our scripture today, Saul thinks himself to be justified by his actions, but Samuel comes in and he sets things straight. In the next two verses, we see the wrong response to reproof, if you're taking notes. And look at verses 14 through 15. Samuel said, what then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul says, uh, they, they brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice uh, to the Lord your God and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Samuel says, uh-huh, if you've been so obedient, if you've done everything that God's told you to do, you follow the commandment of the Lord. Why do I hear the sheep over there, Saul? <laughs> Why do I hear that ox? It's a sarcastic question exposing Saul for taking spoil when he was instructed to get rid of it. Saul then tries to quickly justify his actions. He goes, uh, uh, I spared the best so I could give it to God. But it wasn't even really me who spared it. It was those Israelites that y'all have given me to be king over. They did it. It was, it was them. If you continue to read through the next few verses, Samuel cuts off Saul and tells Saul that God had put Saul in charge as king and Saul was responsible. God had told him to get rid of everything. It doesn't matter what the people said. What did God say, Saul? is kind of the intention that you're getting as you walk through there. Saul then, in verse 
20, excuse me, tries to justify himself saying that he did obey God. It's those people who did wrong. He, he couldn't help it. He couldn't stop them. It's those people. The wrong response to reproof is to deny responsibility and cast blame on others. The wrong response to reproof is to deny responsibility and cast blame on others. If you look closely at the story here and make a note, you can refer back to verse nine. We see Saul was an active participant in the disobedience. We aren't given any indication that he had to be persuaded in that section of the text to go along with what the people wanted to do, to go along with keeping the best of the spoils. It poses Saul as responsible in verse 9. He is switching the story here because he got caught with his hand in the cookie jar. He's trying to rationalize his way out of it. It shouldn't be that difficult for us to look at the facts of the story and see the inconsistencies with Saul's story. I think all of us, if we're following along as we're walking through here, can agree Saul is rightly being uh, presented as the one at fault in this situation. But the difficulty we have, the truth that we need to explore for a moment, is we do the same thing. Often, our flesh, our natural instinct when we get called out is to push the buck off on someone else. This is a sin that finds its root all the way back in the Garden of Eden, right? Where the Lord asked Adam, what did you do? And he said, yo, that woman you gave me, she, she made me do it. And the woman says, oh, it was the serpent, right? Everybody is casting blame onto other people. And while it's true that the individuals there influenced other people, biblically, it is clear we are accountable for our own actions regardless of the influence of others. This is something in our men's class, the Sons of Thunder class that we looked at this past Wednesday as well. And man, if you're not coming to that, come this week. It's going to be great. Uh, you really need to be there. But, but we talked about we can't control what other people do. We can't control the culture around us. We talk about things like lust. We can't control what the other person wears, but we can control taking a second look. We are responsible. We're called to be stewards who are going to give an account of our own dealings, of our own actions. I say all of this because church, we have to start owning our sin and taking responsibility for our own shortcomings. When we face reproof, when we're called out, we're genuinely called out for the wrong actions that we have done against a holy God. We cannot hide behind others. The wrong response to reproof is to deny responsibility and to cast blame on others. The right response to reproof is ownership, confession, and repentance. Now, when it comes to Saul, we can't go back and rewrite history here. He blamed others and we'll deal with the consequences from that. But in your life today, you are being afforded an opportunity to own your shortcomings, confess your sins and turn to God. 
And that is what we must do to honor God whenever our sin is exposed. This idea comes right from the word of God, from the wisdom book. Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. The wisdom of Proverbs states that hiding our sin is destructive, but being honest with ourselves understanding our broken condition, confessing that forsaking sin, repenting from sin, we receive mercy. God is honored by our obedience. When we fall short in our obedience, God is honored by our repentance. Also from our men's class this week, I challenged the men, take one step in removing a stumbling block in your lives uh, that, that influences you to sin. We talked about that principle of if, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. This could be something for you this morning. Maybe it's deleting a Facebook account. Maybe it's setting up digital boundaries, limiting screen time. Maybe it's refusing to laugh when that lewd joke is told at work or anything else. It could be something small, but take a step with the intention. God, you have shown me grace. May I honor you with my life. Just take one step. For you this morning, maybe the first step in honoring the Lord in your life is admitting, I have sinned and fallen short of the glory. Even though there were outside factors, even though there were other people either tempting me or even harming me, I am responsible for when I've fallen short of the glory of God. Make that admission. Don't stop there. Confess it to the Lord and repent. Turn away from sin and towards the Lord. I don't know what's going on. We'll see if it's me. Nope, not me. Look at verses 22 through 23. The Lord takes great delight in our obedience, and that's clear in how Samuel responds to Saul's excuses. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 22 through 23, Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as uh, iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. This is a huge clue for us, for the modern reader, that even in the Old Testament, salvation is by grace through faith. Samuel's making it clear here. The Lord delights in the heart set upon obeying him more than perfectly executing the sacrifice procedures, right? Or making sacrifices out of excess that isn't a sacrifice at all. Saul thought that sacrificing some of the bounty he amassed from the Amalekites would make up for doing what he wasn't supposed to do. But no, that wasn't the case. God doesn't need our stuff. But he delights in having our hearts. And a heart captivated by God is a faith-filled heart. A faith-filled heart is an obedient heart. Twice in the book of Romans, you're given a very interesting phrase. 
It says in the beginning and in the end, the obedience of faith. It's in chapter one and it's also in chapter 16, bookending the whole letter. And that phrase refers to the outcome in the life of one who has received Jesus Christ as Lord. Understanding the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ to pay the cost of our sins, to hear the good shepherd's call in your life is to have faith in Christ that results in obedience. Church, the hard pill for us to swallow as we still struggle in this flesh is that just as Samuel says here in verse 23, disobedience to God is rebellion and presumption. If God has spoken, then to be unwilling to obey him is to rebel against God. Saul's disobedience was a rejection of the word of God. May we not fall into the same way. Saul's response to Samuel's declaration of the rejection, Saul's response there is to grovel. Verses 24 through 25 are an example of where we got to think deeper of what we might get from a brief reading. If you were going through Saul's statement there in verses 23 or 24 and 25, you might think that what he's doing there is repenting, is what we were talking about in Proverbs 28. He's confessing his sin and seeking to be made right, right? But there's a big red flag in verse 25. It says, now, therefore, this is Saul speaking, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. The whole point of Saul's uh, statements there in verses 24 and 25 is for Samuel to come back with him as Saul makes a public appearance before all of Israel. Why? Saul wants the clout of having the prophet there with him. Though Saul uses words that sound like repentance, that sound like, yes, I want to be made with the Lord, his heart is really just in self-defense mode. He says, hey, make sure I still look good in front of the people. That's what he's getting at here. He was unbothered with his transgression against a holy God. He was bothered by maybe losing his kingdom. This is massively important for all of us to understand today. True faith in the Lord is not about keeping our status. True faith in the Lord is not about making a public spectacle about, uh, for keeping up appearances. True faith in the Lord is not about even our own personal comfort. True faith in the Lord is not even about saving our own skin because we think we're worth saving. True faith in the Lord is about seeing God for the holy God he is and desiring to serve him. True faith in the Lord is about seeing Christ doing what you could not do. And true faith in the Lord Jesus is seeing him as the worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and blessing. True faith in the Lord Jesus is seeing and saying blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Amen. Amen. As we read in the book of Revelation. True faith is seeing it's not about us and obedience flowing from seeing it's all about Christ. Saul didn't see that. At least that's where the text lands. He wanted glory. He wanted power directed to himself rather than to God. And he was willing to 
let religion be a pawn for getting that. But remember one of the truths we spoke about last week. God will not be mocked. Samuel does not give in to Saul's wishes. He turns away from Saul. And so the desperate king then in verse 27 dives and he tries to seize on to Saul by the hem of his robe there. And and then Samuel, uh, he actually tears the robe there. And then Samuel addresses Saul in verse 28. Verse 28, Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor who is better than you. Samuel reinforces that the kingdom is going to be ripped from Saul and given to a neighbor. This means a fellow Israelite. This is, uh, uh, even though it was unknown to Saul and even Samuel at this point, God knew King David was going to come in and take King Saul's place. And then we come to the big theological truth that I I thought we were going to get to uh, last week in verse 29. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. This is a bit of a rabbit trail if you're following the primary flow of the sermon this morning. But it's important enough for us to zoom in on this idea for a moment. In verses 11 and verses 35 of 1 Samuel chapter 15, we read that God regretted making Samuel or making Saul, excuse me, king. Here in verse 29, we read that God is not like man. He does not lie or have regret. So a, a quick reading, we might say, isn't this a massive contradiction, Brad? The, the Bible is saying God has regret and then he's not like man and won't have regret. So we have to talk about this. It, it is good to understand the word regret in this passage. When used of God, regret incorporates the thought of a a compassionate grief and an action about to take place. God was not showing weakness or admitting error or regretting a mistake. And that's a bold word there, making a mistake. Rather, He was expressing his need to take specific and drastic action to counteract the wickedness of mankind. So here in verse 29, we see God's regret is different than that of a man's regret. God doesn't say whoops or oopsie daisies. When we read of God's regret in verses 11 and verses 29, as well as when he looked at the wicked world before sending the flood, if you think about that back in Genesis, that regret is an, it's an explanation, an expression of how sin grieves a holy God and that he's about to do something in response. It's not an uh-oh. Because if God promised Jesus in the garden, if the snake crusher was coming from the moment the snake was there, he is not surprised by the results of sin in the world. It's an expression of the hurt a holy God emotes in response to the actions of an unholy creature. If you want to read more about what I'm talking about here, I'm going to give you a big word that you can look up and search or talk to me later about. We're talking about the doctrine of God's immutability here, okay? So that's your key word if you want to follow that rabbit trail later, immutability there. So let's return back to our primary point. In verse 30, 
Saul, once again, asked, Saul to, uh, asked Samuel to come back with him to make a public display before the people. And Saul asked Samuel to return with him. And it says in verse 31, Samuel does turn back uh, after Saul. The implication there is that Samuel turns and he goes, but he doesn't go side by side. He goes at a distance following Saul from behind. We, we, we see why in the last set of verses, verses 32 through 35. Then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, uh, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. And then Samuel went to Ramah. And Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Samuel here in these last few verses here, we see that he's making a public display. He didn't take the crown from Saul at that moment, but he does undercut Saul's authority. When he takes out King Agag, as you read in those verses there, like Saul was supposed to, he's showing the people in a public way, this is what was supposed to be done and your king didn't do it. Then he leaves, never to return before Saul until the day of his death. This estrangement between the king and the prophet is representative of the rift between the disobedient king Saul and the Lord God of Israel himself. The Lord is grieved over the disobedient sin of Israel's kings. What does that tell us today? That tells us that our sin grieves a holy God. I like to show this as a representative of, uh, of uh, the gospel message, but if you focus on that first top, Corner. We see the immutability, the perfection of God in that top left-hand bubble there. In the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, their sin separated them from a holy God. They were an unholy creature, stuck in brokenness. And that brokenness grieves a holy God. And mankind in our broken condition do all sorts of things to try to escape brokenness. We seek relationships. We seek after a, a substance. We seek after glory and power and riches and making our own monuments as King Saul did. Our own self-pride. We do all of it, but it all just leads back into more brokenness, grieving the holy God. But that holy God loves us. Loved us in that while we were still sinners, separated from a holy God, stuck in our brokenness. That he sent the second person of the triune God, God the Son, Jesus Christ. Stepped out of heaven to live a perfect, righteous life. To die on the cross as the perfect sacrifice we could never make. To rise on the third day so that all who... <laughs> Repent of their sins. Believe in Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what that point is on the Jesus bubble down on the bottom. Jesus as Lord. Confess him as Savior, Lord. Have that God-given desire to serve him. Though we may do so imperfectly on this side of glory, we've been restored to the perfect God. 
Enabled by his spirit. Let's go full Trinitarian theology this morning. God the Father sent God the Son who gives us God the Spirit to follow him, obey him, and grow in our, in our understanding and our, our love for one another and our love of God as we walk out our lives in this world. What a grace it is that though we see many disobedient kings in the Scripture, in the world, in our society, we see many leaders that fall so short. What a grace it is that Christ the King never faltered. That God the Father is true to his covenant. That he loves us, all those who believe in him are restored And that we can live out our lives knowing that if we got breath, he has a job for us to do. It says in 2 Corinthians, we therefore are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Therefore, we implore you be reconciled to God for our sake, for sinners' sakes, for all who would believe in him. For our sake, he made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin so that in Jesus Christ, an unrighteous creature like you and I will become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. It's my prayer that as we conclude this section of looking at the rise and fall of Saul, and we've seen a broken king, that you have also seen the glorious king, Christ the king, and that you say, that's my Lord. By his grace, I'm going to serve him. We'll give you an opportunity. If you would like to know more about that, I would love to have a conversation with you about it. You can come forward during this next hymn of response or you can find me afterwards while we're eating downstairs. There is nothing more I would like to talk to you about than understanding Christ as King. And I can say this for all of us. He's worthy to be served. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. I pray that your word went out properly without addition or without putting anything in there that shouldn't have been in there, Lord, and that your word went out truthfully, and that when it goes out, it will not return unto you void, but accomplish that which you have set it to do. Lord, I just pray that we would be faithful to you in all things. I pray that you're working on the hearts of those even here today, that we would be given the God-given desire to serve you. We thank you for Jesus Christ who did what we could not do, paid what we could not pay. May those who know him, those who know you, seek to show you in all that we do, being obedient not to earn your favor, but because we've seen it through Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone understanding that for the first time today, they wouldn't be able to hold that in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. If you want to find out more about our church, you can check out www.durbanchurch.org. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can give us a call or text to 859-813-0369. Also, you can shoot us an email at brad at durbanchurch.org. Have a wonderful day and God bless.